2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And hear the word of God. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we come to your scriptures that they are God-breathed, inerrant-inspired, powerful, And we have heard your voice this morning in your word. And so, Father, would you grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you soften our hearts where calluses have grown? Would you tenderize us to the things of the Spirit? And, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak to us today? God of glory, come in and speak. Heavenly Father, speak to us. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm going to be frank with you. My name's not Frank. My name's Jacob, if you're wondering. Um, Straightforwardly, it's hard to preach a passage. Really, this whole beginning of chapter 2 centers on the idea of what Paul commands Timothy earlier in in chapter 2, verse 3, which we did a few weeks ago, right? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It's difficult to preach this concept in the American church. And that's the arrow of that is pointed at me as well, because we know very little of what it means to suffer for the gospel. We all, as attending, walking in this fallen world, we, we know suffering. We, we know affliction. We know loss. We know grief. We know pain. That There's no one on earth can, that can uh, avoid that. No level of insulation from, uh, from danger can remove the reality that we get sick. We fall down like, like Henry this week, you know, broke his arm playing soccer, like you, the stuff happens like this in a fallen world. But when Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering, in, in verse 1, he says, for the gospel by the power of God. This is a particular type of suffering. And we have had, as, as, and I say we, Christians in the West, and particularly in America, have had a 
And I know these are like uh, loaded phrases these days. We've had a privileged position. I don't mean that in a way that maybe the culture would mean it, but we've had a privileged position that we live in one of the rare instances in, in human history of a country that has religious freedom. Where, where we can do this. What we, what we are doing week in and week out and, and there's nobody, there's no authority that's coming through the door. When I was the... The first time I was in China, it was a sort of an illegal thing. And we were, we were hiding from government officials. We were ducking behind concrete barriers, all sorts of silliness. Uh, the second time I was there, it was legit. You know, we were handing out Bibles and the government knew what we were doing. We couldn't do that now. That was, that was 11 years ago. China's a different place. And, but I remember the first church that we went into. It was, it was in, you know, this was up really cold. I mean, it was negative 40 at night. Really, I mean, it's... Y'all think it gets cold. It was cold. It was like there was frost on the inside of the wall of the hotel. Cold, right? Cold. And so, but they had been waiting. They knew we were coming, but they didn't know when these, these people at this church. And they knew that they had gathered for hours in an unheated sanctuary. Not, the sanctuary did not seat enough people that came. And so many of them, there was, there was a, you know, there's like a wood burning stove in the sanctuary and their worship place of worship many of them waited outside but while we came there uh, one there was three of us that came there was me and another pastor and then a representative from a, um, a, a bible society because we were passing out bibles and i remember we would give a little introduction and then we would you know we would go hand out bibles we weren't we weren't allowed to preach but we could give a little introduction which i don't know how to not preach when i get into a pulpit but anyways um but that wasn't my turn. But I remember as, as we gave the little, one of the pastors, the other pastor gave a little introduction and, and I had a stack of Bibles. Uh, I, I went out into the crowd of these hundreds of people and I'm just sort of handing out Bibles, you know. It was a wonderful experience. And, but head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And some of you who have been here, you've heard the story. Uh, head and shoulders taller than everyone else was a, this police officer who was who was standing in the middle of the sea of the, the, the sea of these people. There was this six foot five Chinese police officer with a video camera. Everything we said, everything we did, he was there. And I remembered I, was, I had the Bible in my hand and I'm walking through the crowd and I come up to him and I am not a tall guy. Right. And so I look up to this guy. And I said, and, uh, you know, and he looks at me, he has the camera, like literally it's like in my face. Um, and I said, do you want a Bible? And he took it. <laughs> I don't know what he did with it, but he took it. But that was like that everywhere. We had communist party and I'm sure they'll like, they'll, they'll filter this. Some Chinese spy will listen to the sermon and I'll never be allowed back in the country. And that's okay. Um, but everywhere we went, we had a communist party, uh, handler. Who knew what we were doing, where we were doing. We had, to get, we had to give up our passports when we got there. When we went to a hotel, we had to give them our passports. Um, and there's all these stories. They, they came busting into our hotel room one night. It's a whole thing. Um, but we don't... And, and now, and that seems like over... Like there's cameras everywhere. There's, there's, they're listening to everything. The, the pastors are monitored. The churches are monitored. There are unregistered churches and there are registered churches. And, and all of that is under the government's control. And it's gotten so bad now, right, that they're... The, I don't know if you know this. I've shared it before. But the Communist Party in China has begun to... Maybe they've finished by now. Uh, to, to rework 
the Bible in a way that is more fitting to Communist Party, Chinese Communist Party ideals. And the idea is, is that they will undercut biblical witness for the next generation. And that's just one gigantic country, but we could go down the list of of uh, the communist party, uh, communist countries like China and North Korea. We could go through some of the, the Islamic uh, states, you know, the, the high price Christians have to pay in places like Iran and Afghanistan and, and places in Central Asia where it is extremely risky to publicly identify yourself with Christ. Or, um, or maybe you're from a Hindu family in India and it is remarkably costly for you to identify with Jesus. And if I were standing before them and I would say, share in suffering for the gospel, they would say, yes, we already know. We already know to live as Christ, to die as gain. And yet, here, you know, if the, the election doesn't go our way or if, you know, um, a, a baker gets, you know, they, they don't do certain kind of, they don't do homosexual weddings. And so they get, and, you know, they have to pay for it and all that kind of stuff. And we get up and I'm not saying like I disagree with the outrage, right? Like, they, anyway, they should have the, that's another subject. Um, but we get up in arms as though we know persecution and we know suffering. That there are people that would speak ill, like our neighbors would say something bad on Facebook and we feel, oh, woe is me. Look at the cross I must bear. And my fear is that we have no idea. We have no idea. Right? Paul's writing these things and when he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, it's not a metaphor. It's not an analogy. He's telling Timothy, he says, you are, it's going to be costly to follow Jesus. And it's what Jesus saturated the Gospels with. They hated me, they're going to hate you. The, the disciple's not greater than the Master. The servant isn't greater than the master. They hated me. They're going to hate you. And share in suffering. And, and to support his idea, he gives three metaphors, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? The, uh, the soldier, the athlete, and the hardworking farmer. We did that on Palm Sunday. Uh, and then he gives three examples in the passage that I just read. To support his command, share in suffering for the gospel. Join me, share in suffering with me for Christ as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Here are three metaphors to support it. And then here are three examples to support it. So lest you think that this is something that was particular to Paul or it was particular to Timothy or it's particular to those other countries and that what we experience in America is somehow regulative or somehow normative, like this is normal. You should be confronted with this passage that we just read. That we are not the norm, we are the exception. And if things continue the trend upon which they are running currently, we will no longer be the exception and we will fall into the norm. What I'm saying subtly there is that if current cultural and societal trends continue, 
we could very well be in the place where this does not seem like an abstract idea. But what I want to say to you before I kind of unpack these three examples is that while we might not know suffering as though someone were going to come in and arrest us and take us away or somehow lay claim upon our lives for Jesus' claim upon us, to remain faithful to Jesus in a society of complacency and ease is going to require some intentional suffering on your part. Let me say that again. To remain faithful and to, and to grow as the Christian that you're supposed to be in a society that's marked by self-indulgence, by self-security, by complacency and ease, it's going to require some intentional suffering on your part. Everybody, everybody catch what I'm laying down, right? Because if you just blow along with the complacency, ease, self-security that, that we have grown accustomed to in America, it will lead you off the tracks. Three examples that Paul gives to support his command, share in suffering. The first example is relatively straightforward, one that we talked about last week, right? Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. If he's going to rise from the dead, what goes before that? He has to go into the dead, right? He has to be dead. Remember Jesus Christ. Share in suffering as a good soldier of, of Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, remember Jesus Christ. There are some Christians who act like, well, Jesus, remember Jesus. He did all of these hard things for you. And so now you can live easy. Dear ones, glory's coming. But in this world, whoever wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's scripture, by the way. That through many tribulations, we enter into the kingdom of God. Scripture again, right? When we look at what Christ has accomplished, yes, his, yes, his suffering accomplishes redemption for his people. He fully satisfies the demands of the law. He, he fully pays the debt for our sin. That his suffering does what no other suffering can do. His death in our place does what no other death can do. His suffering is productive. It, it is fruitful in that it produces redemption. He is the hero. He is the content of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ, His person and His work. Remember that. Keep that in mind. Keep it at the forefront of your face. Keep it plastered before you. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Why? And I don't have time to preach this message because we have places to go. But a fruitful question for you, as you're thinking about the richness of what Jesus has accomplished for you, is to explore that phrase, the descendant of David. Why on earth does Paul tell Timothy, right? Timothy comes from a, a mixed background, part, part Greek, part Jewish, but he's, he's laboring in like predominant Gentile country. 
Why is it significant to remember that Jesus is a descendant of David other than that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Davidic promises and he is the king who comes in David's line who is going to judge with equity and fairness and set the world aright. Remember Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, has preached in my gospel, for which, second example, I am suffering. Timothy, Sharon, suffering Example one, look at Jesus. His suffering produces redemption. He rises from the dead. But it doesn't mean that we don't suffer as we follow his footsteps. That the the Christian life is the the cross-shaped way. But then also, look at me. Share in suffering. Remember Jesus. Look at me. I am suffering for the gospel. It's preached in my gospel for which, the, the for which is referring to the gospel. The content, the message about Jesus' person and work has landed Paul in chains. He is, remember, he's at, the, he's at the belly of the beast. He's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the worst prison in Rome. In chains. And he's saying, I landed here. Not for being a political dissident. I didn't land here because I was a knucklehead on the streets. I landed here because of the gospel of Jesus. For which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. He's saying I'm not really a criminal, right? Jesus is Lord. I'm here unjustly. But the word of God is not bound. What has fueled all of this? Another translation says it wonderfully. The word of God is not imprisoned. As though what God was accomplishing through his word could somehow be thwarted. Could somehow be stopped. That the message of the gospel, even if you chain up the preachers, will go on. Because Jesus has said, I will build my church God said through the prophet Isaiah that his word goes out and it will not come back void. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.13 that the word of God works effectually in those who believe. The word of God cannot be bound up with chains and censorship. The word of God, when faithfully residing upon the hearts and the lips of God's people, will march on. You can think about, and I think I've recently mentioned this, about the, the, I think it was 21 Coptic Christians who were killed by ISIS on the banks, on on the beach of the Mediterranean. And those who have worked in the Muslim world can tell you stories of how their faithfulness to Jesus in death has led other people to faith in Christ and life in Christ through their death. Being able to see the serene, the serenity of their faces. Their quiet, still, faithful prayers as they lost their heads for Christ's sake. The word of God is not bound. Such is the cause that made the early church father, Tertullian, who said the the seed of the martyrs is the blood of the church. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, verse 10, 
And you can almost go to every Bible I own, and I own a lot of Bibles, which is, don't, Sarah not in here, so uh, she, she knows, right? But I, this verse is always highlighted. Right here, it's highlighted. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The word of God is not bound, but as Paul is enchained for the gospel, he's suffering because for the sake of bringing the gospel out to God's elect among the nations. Those who will believe upon the name of Jesus, if they will believe, they must hear. Just like Jesus' suffering brings redemption, Paul's suffering brings the extension of the gospel. You see it? It's producive. Producive? Productive. That's not a word. It's productive. Jesus is suffering redemption. Paul's suffering extension. Paul suffers because he brings the gospel to places like Lystra. And people get upset and they stone him and they drag him out of the city. Paul, Stephen's suffering as he preaches in the streets of Jerusalem. It says that Jesus is the Messiah, that the temple and the law all point to him. All the promises of God point to Jesus. And he's stoned there with Saul, who is Paul, standing on the sidelines approving. Suffering for extension. And so while you may not suffer redemptively in the sense that you're going to atone for any sins... If we will see the gospel of Jesus Christ extended to the end of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, affinity group, so that Jesus will have the gift, the inheritance for which he died, it will require the sweat, the tears, and the blood of the church. You know why the places that remain unreached are unreached? Because it's hard. It's hard. It's costly. Financially, but physically, spiritually, it is costly. I've been privileged recently... I think I've told you I've got a, I have a, a new, anyways, you don't get to the whole story, but there's a mentor and he's a part of this ministry. I don't want to give up too many details. And I know I've shared this recently too, um, but they, they equip church planters to go out into really unreached, difficult, hard areas. And last year they had their, their among the, the church planters that they've trained, they had their first martyrs where a mob became enraged and came and beat up the elders of the church and some of them died I endured everything for the sake of the elect Jesus will have the prize for which he died Jesus will have his bride Jesus will have his bride he will have the church and part of our holy vocation as Jesus' people now is seeing, doing everything that we can in every way that we can 
to see that gospel, the message, go out to the nations so that those who are going to believe, believe. This is how Jesus builds his church. This is how Jesus is outfitting his bride. When we sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb, it is a marriage feast. The bride is the church, and Jesus is the groom. And our engagement time will be over, and there will be a consummation in glory, where the full number of the elect, the full number for which Christ has died, is brought into glory. And it will be from every tribe, every tongue, every people group. Look at Revelation. What does he say? Worthy are you, Revelation 5, worthy are you, Lamb of God, to open the scroll. For you have died and you have purchased. He's purchased a people from every tribe and every tongue and every people group. How will they come if they never hear? I will endure everything for the sake of the elect, Paul says, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's not going to happen by happenstance. It's not going to happen by chance. It's not going to be like an oops, all of the nations are reached. But do you think for a moment that the American church will not be held accountable for the treasure trove of resources we have been given? And how many of us If I had a soapbox, I'd get on it. How many of us, how many churches and how many pastors, how many elder boards and deacon boards and committees and whatever else have been consumed with building little K kingdoms rather than investing in the kingdom of God? What would that look like? And I don't want to bring every indictment to bear upon us. Or upon every particular church. But I'm saying that the church in the West. And particularly the American church. And even little churches like ours. Have been gifted with more resources. Than 95% of the churches in the world could ever fathom. With the buildings we have. And the staff we have. And the budget that we have. And the people that we have. We know more than so many churches. Would we, what would happen? What would happen if we were captivated by verse 10? I will endure if we would endure everything for the sake of the elect. What would happen if we, me and you individually and our families and our church said we're going to do whatever we can, whatever it takes. And how are many unreached people groups that are in the world, five, six thousand, whatever it is. What if we said together that that number is going to go down by one? So help us, God. That we said, give us, give us this people group. Just as we say, God, give us Elgin. Every man, woman, child, give us Elgin. That's what John Knox prayed about Scotland. What if the churches in Elgin said, give us Elgin? What if the churches in Columbia said, give us Columbia together? What if we said that over South Carolina and America? But to the ends of the earth. 
I will endure everything for the sake of the elect. Let me move on. So he said, look at Jesus. Look at me. Look at my life. Suffering to extension. And now in verse 11, he enters into 11, 12, 13. It's like a, uh, maybe an ancient hymn. A trustworthy saying. There's only about four of these in the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus. This is a saying. The, <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy. And then he has all of these if-then statements. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, we, he remains faithful. There are two couplets, right? Verse, um, verse 11 and 12, that's one couplet. And those are really the promise of blessing, right? If, if we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we, reign, if we uh, endure, we'll reign. And I'll unpack this in just a second. The second two are warnings. If the first two are encouragements and blessings... The second two are warnings and curses. But he now, he turns from, look at Jesus, look at me, and he says, look at us. This is why we can't say that suffering for the gospel is not normative for the Christian and for the church. It's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the generation after the apostles. It's not just for the early church fathers. This is normal. He says, if we have died. Now, there's two ways to understanding about this, this idea of dying for Christ. Right? There's probably, there's probably three. There's one, like, if I literally die, like, a, like a, some of the saints in the first century in the Colosseum, torn apart by animals. But... There's the objective reality that Paul lays out in Romans chapter 6. If we died with Christ, we'll, we'll live with Christ. You're buried with Christ in baptism. You rise to walk in newness of life. That when you are identified with Jesus, you are rescued from sin, Satan, and the world. You die to your old self. You are buried in baptism. You are given new life in Jesus. It's an objective reality Beyond you, right? That you have died with Christ, we'll live with Christ. But there's also the reality. And this is where what I said earlier is going to come to bear. You remember what I said earlier? That if you're going to be faithfully following Jesus in a world marked by consumerism, comfort, complacency, self-indulgement, it's going to require some intentional suffering on your part. It's right here. If we have died with him, there's more than one place in the New Testament we, where we are commanded by the words of Scripture that we have to die. We have to put things to death in order to live. Two ones that stand out to me off the top of my head. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, right? If you put by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You put to death the deeds of the body. What does that mean? Let's look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. And 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he gives you a list. 
So Paul and his helpful lists. These are the things that you must undergo suffering to kill in your life. And it will be difficult and hard, and it will be a lifelong process as you grow in grace. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a beginning. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge at the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If you're going to be faithfully following Jesus, you're going to have to murder your sin. You're going to have to murder your sexual immorality. You're going to have to murder your porn habits. You're going to have to kill your desire for adultery. You're going to have to change the way that you look at people who are attractive in the, in the opposite sex. You have to be renovated by the Word of God. The way that you use your language must change. You can't tear down other people so that you feel good about your, uh, yourself. You can't slander other people so that you look better to the person that you're speaking to. You must stop gossiping for the love of God. I'm not angry. But if we're going to put it to death, we've got to hate it. And part of the deceitfulness of sin is that it brings at least a fleeting and momentary pleasure. It feels good in that moment. And pastors do this, right? It's terrible. It feels good in the moment to say, well, here's all the deficiencies of this, this guy. Or here's all the things that this church has wrong. So that you can feel good about what you have going on. You can feel good about your church as you make this one puny in somebody's eyes. But the thing is, I know that pastors and churches aren't the only ones who do it. But we do it, right? Can you believe that church does that on Sunday morning? Can you believe they still sing hymns? Can you believe they have a drum set? Can you believe they have a smoke machine? Now, we ain't getting a smoke machine, don't worry. But, but who am I? What else do we have to kill? Anger, wrath, obscene talk. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If you go along with the cultural current of, self, of, consume, of consumption and complacency. You will not put to death anything in your life. You'll only pet your sins as they get bigger and bigger. There's this, I think there's a meme about how you feed sin, right? It starts out as like a, a little lion cub and it's so cute and you're giving it all these little tidbits and it grows a little bit bigger. And finally, when it's full grown, the sin that you should have killed a long time ago consumes you. 
just like a lion would if you were to go out and adopt one, which I don't think anybody's in risk of doing. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. So not only is intentional suffering crucial to our holiness, you be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Without holiness, no one will see God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So, so you have to take on intentional suffering and that you have to change your habits. You've got you to go to bed. Maybe you don't need to binge watch that show so that you have some gas in the tank at five o'clock in the morning to pour out your heart to God in prayer. But it's also intentional sufferings also crucial if we're going to see the gospel extended. Now, we've already talked about that with Paul, but just one instance. First Corinthians chapter 15 and this whole chapter, Paul is de- defending the resurrection. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. This whole chapter, he's defending the idea of the resurrection of the dead. He says this in verse 30 of first Corinthians chapter 15. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Where, where is Timothy ministering again? Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, why on earth would I sign up for the danger? Why would I sign up for the hardship if the dead are not raised? Why would I do the hard thing and fight with beasts at Ephesus? He's not meaning literal beasts. He's meaning powers and principalities, false teachers, ungodly wickedness that he encounters at Ephesus. Why would I engage with that if the dead are not raised? Why would we pursue Christ's glory among the nations if Christ has not been raised? Why would we press into hard conversations, awkward conversations with our neighbors if Christ has not been raised? But the problem is, is that for too many of us, that idea, Jesus has been raised, is just an abstract thing out like, oh, that's cool historical fact for us, when it should be informing our very life today. Because if Christ has been raised, my sin has to die so that I can grow in life in Him. And I need to take on hardship so that other people can hear about Him. I need to take on hardship so that other people will hear about Him. If I endure, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. Death leading to life. Endurance leading to victory. Reigning, ruling with Christ. Quickly, let me address the, the warning here at the end of this passage. It's a trustworthy saying, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This is exactly what Jesus says in numerous places, but one of them is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So, He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here is the warning. If you disown Jesus, he will disown you. It's really that flat. This should, be, this should confront, this should confront not the idea of the perseverance of the saints, that true saints persevere to the end, but it should confront the false mutation of that, of once saved, always saved. True saints persevere. True saints fall, they, they may slip, trump, stumble, slide, whatever language you have, but they get back in the fight. The idea of once saved, always saved is usually this thing happened to me one time. I prayed a prayer at VBS when I was seven. I got baptized a week or two later, and then I left the church and I never came back. That person should have no confidence that they have adequately acknowledged Jesus before anyone. Baptism is the beginning of your acknowledging Jesus before men. But you must live a life that acknowledges Jesus before men. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect in this. You might have those moments of weakness, but you come back and you repent and you're coming back to Christ. But if you disown him, you walk away, you have no confidence on the day of judgment that Jesus will acknowledge you before the Father. Yes, I paid his price. That's what you need to hear. Yes, I paid that debt. God forbid that we here on that day depart. I never knew you. And here is the warning that you must own. If you're not going to sign up for following Jesus with the attending joy beyond comparison and also the attending suffering in this life, Be careful. Do not let this day be the sum and substance of your confession of Christ publicly. What do you look like in your workplace? What do you look like in your neighborhood? Are you saying one thing today? You know, holy, holy, holy. I didn't see any of y'all doing this, but this is what you're doing in your heart, so I'm imagining. And then you go out and you live like Jesus hasn't risen. Don't let that be. Don't let that hypocrisy fester in your heart. Repent and acknowledge Christ today and acknowledge him tomorrow. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I always grew up understanding this to be like somehow a a good promise. And it is a promise. It's a promise that God keeps his word. But just like the first couplet goes together, if we have died with him and then if we endure, those are they go together so that they parallel each other. This one, if we deny him, he will also deny us parallels with if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we're faithless, then we can understand if we are void of faith, then God is faithful to his word, for he cannot deny himself. It's not as though 
somehow you live this life without any trust, without any living faith in Jesus, and that you get to the end of the day and that you think Jesus, God, is going to somehow write an exception clause at the end of the contract. He's going to somehow change the rules. This is what we've been seeing in Hebrews, right? Take care, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The end of this 3.12 in Hebrews, the end of that chapter, the last verse of chapter 3 of Hebrews. And we see that they did not enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. He's talking about the generation that died in the wilderness. They didn't come into the promised land because they disbelieved God. If you live a life of faithlessness, God is faithful to His Word. He will not somehow amend the deal just to get you in. Here is the warning today. Trust Christ and live. It's a promise. And it's a warning. Faithlessness leads to an eternity lost in the wilderness and separated from the presence of God in hell. He is faithful. He is true. But if you're faithless, turn today and trust Him. Turn today and trust him because just as he is faithful to keep his word, he will keep his word when he says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Bedrock promise. Bank on it. Call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. I pray, God, that you would now bind the hands of the adversary who would seek to pluck away the seeds of the gospel from understanding and from hearts and from attention. We pray, O oh God, for quick rootedness, but Lord, that there would be an endurance in how your word bears fruit in these hearts. And Father, I ask that you would turn people to yourself. If there is faithfulness, would you encourage it? Would you foster it? Where there is faithlessness, Lord, shine a light on it, Holy Spirit. Bring conviction that True faith might grow in that heart. Lord, we look to you. Accomplish your will through your word. In Christ's name, amen.